0: Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. So you uh, been out and about doing anything cool lately?
1: Uh, No, actually, I have not because I am quarantined in my house.
0: You are quarantined because... Because?
1: Because I have coronavirus. No, that's not true. I don't have coronavirus. Probably. (laughs) Probably. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so um, a couple weeks ago, Shay and I went to Italy uh, and I have... Kind of the trip from hell in some ways. Yeah. Uh, I'll start with the first part because I think it's an important PSA for our listeners. (laughs) PSA, uh, certain countries in the world require that your passport be uh, valid a certain amount of time after you're planning to leave that country. Uh, So somewhere on the order of like 90 days, right? uh, Most places are three months. Some places are six months. In this case, the Shenden region, which is a group of... 26 countries in the EU is three months. Uh, this was not known by me. And when I went to check in for our flight on Friday night, we were flying out Saturday night to Italy. Uh, Shay was going for work. So we turned it into a bigger trip. I got an error when trying to check in and said, it was kind of vague and said something about not valid. And I looked around, looked around and finally came across this information that, you know, Oh, Italy is part of this region. My passport was expiring. In three months, minus two weeks. So, oh, I was very was close. J- just missed it. Yeah. Uh, although, as I found out later, if I would have been off a single day, they would have not let me on the plane. Uh, so, I looked around the internet a lot and, you know, kind of panicked a little bit. But it was Friday night at 10 o'clock and my options were nothing. <laughs> and basically, the internet said, yeah, they might just let you on, like... You know, they might just be like, oh, whatever. Or you can maybe throw a fit and be an angry American and they'll just like let you in. There's a chance you make it denied at Italy, but very likely, you know, very unlikely, whatever. Uh, So we decided to just go for it. Uh, That did not work out. (laughs) (laughs) I was denied entry at the airport. Uh, They had signs at Lutanza station, the airline that, you know, signs at every single kiosk where you to check in, you know, must be valid three months, etc., uh and two people two people behind us also got denied. Now they were much angrier than we were, um, because they were older and came you know, seemed wealthy and were just trying <laughs> to throw money around. But um so that was harrowing because Shay went on without me and I didn't, and it was weirdly like really upsetting and sad and dramatic. Dramatic. I don't know. Uh so that sucked. So the basic thing I had to do was I had to go to the US passport agency. Uh, to get a same-day passport renewal, which I could have done if this had not occurred Friday night Uh because they are open every weekday. Uh, They're not open on the weekend. Also, it was President's Day Monday, so I couldn't go Monday. And there Mm. wasn't a flight out Tuesday. Well, there was, but it was $3,000. So I had to fly out Wednesday night. So I went to the passport agency, which, side note, best federal or any government interaction I've ever had in my entire life. It was like, smooth quick friendly efficient I was just like what where are we what are we doing <laughs> like it was actually very nice so props to the Philadelphia passport agency uh but yeah I got my passport the same day um, was in was in the agency at nine walked out by 9.30, came back to pay my passport at 1 130 and then I was on the plane at the next day at five so went to Italy was in Rome for approximately an hour before we were trying to train to Bologna and we had a very nice couple days of the trip. Although Shea got very sick, passed that to me, and I got very sick. And then it came out that the coronavirus exploded in Northern Italy. Now, we were not in Northern Italy, and our sickness was not coronavirus. That was just a coincidence, although many people, I think, doubt when I say that. Sure. But I get why they do that, but it was not. The coronavirus is a lower respiratory infection akin to pneumonia, and ours was purely like a head cold. So, also, we would like didn't like die. So that's
0: exactly what someone with coronavirus would say. That's true. Um, actually, I kind of wish it was coronavirus
1: because then we would have came home. We would like we'd be done by now. But I'll get there. So anyway, Shay was there for work because she was helping to advise students who are in a town called Urbino, which is in the Marche region of Italy, uh, on the mm, kind of like a couple like an hour, two hours east of Bologna. So it's not in the north, but it's in like the northern half. Uh, Milan and Venice were obviously the big hotspots. We started hearing rumblings of it. Uh, Very quickly, things escalated. And then Villanova decided to uh, cancel the rest of the study abroad program. Uh, Meanwhile, Italy is shutting things down. So the town we were in is home to a university and a number of museums and things, which all got shut down. So we basically doing had nothing to do in this very beautiful town in Italy, which, I mean, restaurants were open and stuff. So we still did that. Try to make the best of it. Uh, we also had, you know, 27, 19 year olds who are sobbing because they're, you know,
0: this
1: (laughs) thing they want to do and spend so much time in is getting canceled and they have to go home and they have to go home, home for two weeks because of their potential exposure. And then they have to go back to Villanova to finish their classes. Uh, so then we come home and I'm hearing, you know, my boss is kind of a hypochondriac, not my boss, the head of our office, um, self-described germaphobe hypochondriac and he said you know what why don't you just like stay home the first week after you get home you know work from home like okay that's fine i can do that that sounds great and then the university put out policy like yeah anyone who was in italy in recent times is gonna have to uh stay home for 14 days i was like oh okay so two weeks that's Trochet and i since we both work at the university and we were both there so it is now friday uh I won't say I haven't left my house because when we first got back, it was unclear because, you know, our federal government is handling this swimmingly. Yeah. Yeah. Bunch of uh, professionals. <laughs> it was unclear if we should be just avoiding exposure, if we should be just not going to work. Villanova was not very helpful in what they recommended. I had a friend be kind of an asshole, but maybe he was right about just like, dude, you need to like not go anywhere. Uh We'd already been to the store and I also went to a concert which is probably not a good idea but I have no regrets I'll get there uh but then we decided Wednesday of this week that maybe we should just just not go anywhere till yeah next Friday you know as long as we're not showing any symptoms or anything so now we're doing our part so just used a giant direct for the first time gonna oh. drop off some groceries for us tomorrow <laughs> uh so yeah we've just been working from home our cats are very happy Um, I imagine that we're not going to be, this is just the beginning and I'm sure that by the time this episode comes out, there's going to be even more people, uh, who are having to do this because
0: things are ramping up quite quickly. Yes. It's it's, first cases
1: in Pennsylvania just came out.
0: Yep. And, and down here in Maryland too, we just, uh, got our first three, uh, confirmed last night and, um, the situation is, is just going to continue until somebody somewhere, figures out a you know a um a cure and or a vaccine um which is minimum 18 months yeah
1: um on the other hand these things tend to sort of run their course and become less problematic right over time
0: um but it's going to cause major disruptions for everyone much sooner, I think, than anyone's willing to admit. Um Like, I was on the phone this morning with people who still thought they'd be able to, like, they'd be flying flying in for meetings on Tuesday. And I'm like, nope, nope, you're not going to. Uh That's not, it seems fine. And then literally this afternoon, I was on the phone with the same people and they were like, yeah, we're not going to be able to fly in. I'm like, huh. <laughs>
1: Huh, who would have At
0: 9 a.m., they were like, that's fine, we're coming. i like, all right, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's
1: a tough thing to, to kind of manage because on one hand, obviously, we should be trying to do everything we can to mitigate the ill effects of this, right? But on the other hand, I don't remember it being like this for like SARS or MRS or H1N1, which are like, we're all objectively worse than this is, both in- Level of contagiousness, contagiousness—that's not a word—and um, like mortality rate, especially because it's seeming to be the case that like this is a very underreported disease for a lot of reasons. Well, so
0: I, I think that might have something to do with it. Um, that from everything I'm told, that the the symptoms, at least in the early stages, are very easy to just chalk up to a cold. So. It's able to spread faster than some of these other diseases that have more obvious symptoms that manifest more quickly. Right. Um. So you're going to have people who are walking around contagious for a longer period of time before it, um, uh, you know, but b- before it manifests, so they're going to infect. You know, it's just going to spread faster that way. I right. think that's probably part of it. Um. And I mean, yeah. At this point, it's really about just. Slowing the spread as much as possible so that vulnerable people are protected and, you know, life and society is disrupted as little as possible. But um, our leaders have already fucked all this up. They're going to continue to fuck it up. Um, so I don't see things going very great in America. I, I think it's not, you know, when I say worst case scenario, I don't mean we're all, you know, going to die from this and it's going to be Mad Max in May. I just mean that um, your office is going to get shut down. Your kids' daycare is going to get shut down. You're not going to be able to go to the grocery store for a couple of weeks. Well, you'll be able to, but it's going to be a real bad idea to go to the grocery store for a couple of weeks, like and you know, major you know transportation disruptions, all that stuff. Like that's going to happen. <laughs> That is that is going to be the next couple months and we all need to stop pretending that we're just going to wake up tomorrow and this is all going to blow over. Um,
1: yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, I think that's all true. And I think if people have plans in the next few months that are, you know, I mean, when I think about what you can do to try and mitigate that now, prepare for like the worst case scenario. Right. Like you said, I think that. The other thing, it's hard because to your point about how it's kind of hard to detect and our government's not doing a good job. I mean, here was the extent of what happened when I came back to America after being in this, quote unquote, you know, I wasn't from in Milan or Venice, but I was in this area and potentially on planes. I know it was on planes with people who were in those areas uh, because I heard them talking about it in the airport and how they were all saying they're going to lie and tell people they weren't there, which is mm. great. Um, so when I was, when I came back through TSA and uh, came with the passport and go through customs and all that. And they said, all right, where were you coming back from? Italy. Okay. Where in Italy? I'm like, you know, Bologna, Rome, Urbino, Modena. And they're like, okay, how are you feeling today? I'm like, fine. Okay. That was the extent of screening coming back from, and employing plane full full people from Italy. And I heard the guy in front of me say he was in Venice and he got the same line of questioning and just walked right through.
0: Oofa doofa.
1: So, I mean, on one hand, That seems bad. On the other hand, what are you going to do? Cause this isn't something you can just like test on the fly, right? This isn't something that you can just like, you can't take every single person who's been anywhere near an affected region and take them off to a military base and quarantine them. Right. I mean, they could have given instructions like the U S government's recommending to do X, Y, Z, like that would have been helpful to know. Right. But, uh, you know, how, how do you, like, what is it, what's the end game, right? You know, you said, like, daycares are going to close, schools are closing, these kind of things are happening. They're going to happen, but to what end, right? Like, they're going to shut down for two weeks, and then if it's not going, are they going to stay shut down? Like, how much can we, you know I mean? How much can, that's not going to solve the problem. It's
0: going to mitigate it temporarily, right? But Right. But again, I, I think that's all that anybody's really trying to do now is just to slow this thing down and minimize the impact until we have a longer term solution like a you know like a cure like a vaccine you know like or or even just knowing a little bit more about this thing because you know you read articles and it's it's like they don't even know how long this th- stuff stays alive on a surface right mm-hmm. the human person to person transmission is understood pretty well but you know does it die after four hours? Does it die after 12 hours? Does it die after a minute? We don't know. And there's a lot of big unknowns here. And, you know, there might be there might be other kind of everyday steps we all could be taking that we just don't know about because we haven't studied it enough. And, yeah, what is the end game? Like, we're waiting on the cure and the vaccine. Um, but from my understanding, thing, there is no
1: there's no possibility for a cure since it's viral, right? Um, I mean, it's not really like. Very few things have quote unquote cures, I guess. Right. But, but
0: I, I, I'm I'm under the impression that they're that they are working on something that they can that they can give you that um that will you know, like that will Yeah, you're right. I guess if it is viral, it just has to run its course. But mm-hmm. um That's right. why you
1: need a vaccine, like why it came with antibiotics and that kind of stuff.
0: Right, 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 right. Um I mean I,
1: I think that like the biggest thing to your point is to focus on is like the testing and stuff, right? Like uh, I thought, like, Oh, maybe we can go to our doctor and get tested when we get back. But the test is like complicated and expensive. Like I heard someone had got a bill. They got, they like voluntarily got tested and their bill was $3,500. And it's just like, well, no one's going to do that. So apparently so some, some places are starting to like cover that. Like certain States are making mandating insurance companies to pay for the government's yeah. trying to pick up some of the tabs, but like, it's going to go so far. I mean, I, I did read something about there's something they're working on a way if you use like a breathalyzer to test for it, which would go a long way as opposed to having to because right now when we were in Italy, they were talking about testing it and they're like, yeah, to do that, we have to first go to the hospital. They're going to run a test there for quote, for a coronavirus, which is right. a broader you know category of uh, v- viruses. And then then they have to then, which takes time, and then they have to take that if it comes back positive, then they take back and they ship that to the only place that had the Capability, which was Rome at the time, to test for the actual COVID-19 stream. Yeah. So it's just like, Jesus, that's a lot to try and, you know, because I don't know what, if you can't test easily or quickly, I don't know what good quarantining is going to do once this continues to community spread, you know? Yeah, I mean. I mean, you, I think it's better to self-quarantine high-risk people yes. in nursing homes and that kind of stuff. Although I read an article about how, like, kids aren't typically, you know, these things affect disproportionately like older immunocompromised people and in like young children. But apparently that's not affecting the young children as much as from what I've heard, which is that's weird. That's
0: what I've heard, but I've also read that no one, that no one really understands that phenomenon. They don't right. know if it's just a factor of, there is something about the virus that um, does, you know, make it less impactful on kids Or if there's just some phenomenon of the way it's spreading and being reported that we're just not the the the, uh, child cases just aren't being reported or something like that. It's right, just a statistical anomaly, not not
1: really like a true medical phenomenon.
0: Right. Um, So yeah, I mean, there's very little we we can do right now, but you know, I'll say that um, something that's not helping is. When the president goes on Fox News and gets this thing visibly confused with the flu and tells people that a flu shot will protect them. <laughs> and he is then rapidly corrected by certain officials who will probably be punished. But um but even so, the fact that that happens, there's a certain amount of people that are going to hear that and not hear the correction or not believe the correction when they hear it. And then they're going to go off and, you know, they're not going to be as careful as someone else. Or the president downplaying the risks and the severity of the infection because people are dumb and they say, oh, I'm not at risk. It's just going to be a bad cold. Whatever. I'm strong and healthy. I don't care if I get it. The president said it's not that bad. So now that's a person who's walking around and Affecting everybody else. It's like these dum-dums who, when it's raining, they don't turn on their headlights because they're like, I can see just fine. Because nobody (laughs) ever told them headlights in the rain are also about other people seeing you. So that's a big problem. And we are and this is part of the way where, yes, what can the government actually do in a situation like this? And the answer is. It's actually probably a pretty limited thing other than have, were steps taken to prepare, right? Were there agencies in place? Was there funding in place to deal with something like this? And uh, there was, but then we got rid of it because it was something Obama did and we had to get all that stuff out um, because reasons. Um, so those are the sorts of things you can do. And then... Yeah, they should be hustling to make sure that there are, you know, that every doctor's office in the country is prepared to to run tests and that those tests should be free. And, and yeah, they can scramble a little bit on that. But the big thing is the leadership stuff, right, mm-hmm. is just you need a leader who's going to go out there and, you know, manage how people go about their lives with this going on, you know telling people to be calm or telling people to be worried whatever the right thing is, telling people how to prepare if they should prepare, telling people here are the things you need to do um, not going out and giving people a false sense of security. and I don't and I'm not saying false sense of security and like a, he should just be more stern about it. I mean he's literally telling people it's not as dangerous as it is, as it actually is. He's literally telling people that things that will not work against the virus will work against the virus. This is fucking bonkers. Right. I mean,
1: that's like you said, that there's not a ton of, you know, some good examples, but besides that, there's not a lot the government can do. But what the government can do is it can provide information and guide people during this time, yes. which it is not doing. And therefore, it then falls back on the way of the other ways people acquire information, AKA the internet slash media. And therefore that causes a dis- misinformation disinformation and be just like panic and hysteria which is also not particularly helpful you know all these fakings like everyone going to buy masks and it's like yeah the cdc kind of says like doesn't really do much like to wear a mask unless you actually like have it yeah and it's, it's a certain kind of mask that's been treated with certain chemicals and whatever so it's just like people everyone buying like medical masks like yeah those don't really like do anything like it's just and, and like it, buying water that you don't need, like, you know, and then, and not, not even getting to the fact of just like, you know, people being like racist about it and stuff now, well, but
0: yeah, I mean, and the masks thing, it's not just that it's, um, it's a, you know, you're wasting your money and effort wearing a mask if, you know, you are healthy and you're not interacting day to day with an infected person. You know, like they say, like, if you're actually taking care of something for a caregiver for someone who is, in fact, you should wear a mask, but right. um, but it's it's also a problem because there are only so many masks. Right. <laughs> and if you're buying them just to put in your survival box or just to wear because you're extra scared, that means those masks can't be used by health professionals or by people who are sick. Or by people who, you know, have to have to, you know, who actually need them. So uh, this is the sort of stuff that the, you know, you would want the government to be going out there and telling people. Like just last night I was listening to, you know, Governor Hogan, who, uh, you know, who I'm not a fan of. But he handled it right when he did, you know, announced that we had cases in Montgomery County and what he was doing. And he basically said, you know, he said, here's the situation. Here's what's going on. We're declaring a state of emergency because that unlocks certain um, things within the within the federal government. Um, and but you should go about your everyday life. You should be careful in such and such a ways. You know, wash your hands. Don't touch your face, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like, there you go. Good information, reassuring, giving me a little bit of guidance. It Well done. But who uh, oh boy, we're we're going to make this worse.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good point about the mask because when we were in Italy, you know, uh, Shay's parents were very, very nervous and were, you know, we want to see a picture of you guys with masks on when you get in the plane. And literally they are just, they just didn't exist. Like they just were sold out and yeah. gone everywhere. So, um, we didn't really want to buy them anyway, but that's besides the point. Yeah, uh, just making your point valid. Like that's definitely the case. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a mess. I mean, I mean, you're um,
0: already, you're already, your life
1: has already been significantly disrupted by it. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not, I'm not going to complain that I'm working from home for two weeks. Like, that's kind of nice. I am missing some important things at work next week that I'm not super thrilled about, but, uh, not being able to go anywhere is a weird feeling. I mean, we've been walking around outside, like taking walks, you know, just right. get out of the house. We don't need to be like that isolated because it's not, it's not as contagious as something like tuberculosis or something like that, where it's like just being anywhere near someone means they're going to get it.
0: But, uh, Yeah, so... Right, they say, like, six feet, you know, as long... Anything you can do where you don't have to come within six feet of another person is fine. Right. So, and, you know, like I said, we're not showing you symptoms, but we're just trying to be... Do our part. Exactly. Um,
1: Except for the part where I, you know, potentially infected most metalheads in the greater Philadelphia area when I went to a concert.
0: Yeah, but... (laughs) But I probably don't have it,
1: so it's probably fine.
0: Yeah, yeah, um... Yeah. So, so, so you, you, you did go to a show and you had a very good time.
1: Oh, Greg, Greg, I already gushed a little bit to you, but I'm going to gush some more. So Tuesday this week, I went and saw uh, Devin Townsend, who we talked about previously on the podcast, but. Mm-hmm. Friend of the show. Uh, friend of the show. <laughs> uh, as well as uh, the openers, Haken and the Contortionist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'll just, go, I'll just talk about them real quickly to get on the way, but. So The Contortionist is a band I've listened to a little bit. I've listened to them a couple of times. I've always kind of liked it, kind of thought it was interesting, different. They're a little bit what we call genty in that sort of way we talked about in the metal episode. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a singer that I really like. He was in a band called Last Chance to Reason. He's got a very interesting style that I've always enjoyed. And they're generally like seem like pretty cool proggy guys. Uh, I'll say that their set was killer. Like, you know how those bands you kind of like you listen to them, but then you see them live and it's way better. Mm-hmm. or really makes it click for you. That was the situation. So that already started off amazing. I was like, wow, that was a great set. Like, really, really cool. Uh, And then Haken, I've seen before. I keep telling people they're like, if Dream Theater was still cool or still (laughs) trying to do something interesting. Um, Yeah, I don't know if cool is ever
0: going to be the operative word with Dream Theater. But yeah.
1: But it's... True in multiple ways, because the one thing I don't love about Haken is, like, their lead singer is just, like, not great, <laughs> in my opinion. Like, he seems like a nice guy, but he's just, like, his voice is very weak. Mm. And he seems to be the weakest link, which is very much the case for Dream Theater. Uh But they were a lot of fun. They're just, like, super cheesy prog. Like, you can't go wrong. Um, They played their hits, and we had a good time. But then, so this, this tour is called, Devin Townsend put out an album last year called Empath. And it was kind of a big... Very different style album for him than he's done in the past. Sort of a confluence of a lot of his styles, which he's put out albums of a wide variety of styles from, you know, very heavy metal to like new age, weird stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, um, album that kind of sounds like Johnny Cash at points, but I I don't know, just like all kinds of random stuff. But uh, this album, Empath, came out and he said he was announcing he was doing three tours based on this release, this album three volumes, you know, volume one, two, and three. And the first volume tour it is, he said, I wanted to do just a bonkers tour that's just musicians I like, and we're not going to have set lists and we're not going to, you know, have a set show and we're just going to like do whatever we want. I need really good people to do that because it requires a certain kind of musician to be able to do that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to play stuff from throughout my entire catalog, including, Devin Townsend's original band, Strapping On Live, which is not something he does, has done in a very long time. It's true. It's probably been 10 plus years since he's played Strapping Live, right? There's been like a few times he's busted out a song or two, like in like the early 2010s. Yeah. But not something he does frequently. And on purpose, he always said that Strapping, while important and he's never going to diminish it, was always sort of like a reflection of like a bad time in his life Mm -hmm. and a lot of negative emotions. Uh, But the one thing he said about empath was that it sort of reawoken his love for like more extreme metal and was sort of cathartic for him with strapping material. Cause there's some stuff on empath that is very heavy and very strapping. Uh, so that's volume one. Volume two is actually a full heavy tour, which he already started on the 70,000 tons of metal thing where he assembled like a quote unquote heavy metal band, you know, extreme metal band uh, guest members. And he's going to do that tour volume two, where he's just playing, heavy stuff from strapping from all of his other solo stuff. And then the third volume of the tour is going to be empath in its entirety with as much of the original kind of like grouping he did for that album that he can get, including possibly a small orchestra or something like that,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: because his album that he made, it has, you know, he went to a recording studio and he brought different guest musicians and he had three drummers. He had two bassists, he had four guitarists, like he just really assembled things. People play from parts. And that was how he made this album. So, anyway, all that context said, this was one of the best sets I've seen in my entire life. Yeah. It was just, so many cool things happened, and I was just left guessing the entire time. You know, most shows, even a band you really like or a show you're really excited for, you know, by the end of it, you're kind of like, all right, I'm ready to, like, you know, my feet hurt, I'm a little tired <laughs> of standing, you know. know the feeling. I'm, I'm tired, I want to go home. I, I could have stood there for six hours, Greg. I mean, I, I was just like... Please more, please more, please more. Because on this tour he had himself, he brought the um, drummer who, one of the drummers from his most recent album, who he also made, uh, who also played the drums for Casualties of Cool, which is his, like, how would you describe that, Greg?
0: Uh, That's more, like, ambient, right? Sometimes it's I like, get confused. It's like, kind of, it's like. Kind of not
1: country, but like Johnny, like early Johnny Cash, mixed with some ambient, mixed with some. Um, I'm thinking weird, of his other. You're thinking of Ghost, the yeah? Uh, or you're thinking of maybe what's that album called? It doesn't matter. Yeah, he's done matter. a lot of different things. Yeah, stuff
0: to keep them all straight.
1: Yeah, uh, it has a female vocalist on it. Um, her name is Che. Che, I think. Um, she was touring as well. She also was on Kai. And a couple of his other albums. She does some guest vocals like An Empath. Uh that drummer was also in Zappa. The other guitarist on the tour was in Zappa. He's like Mike Neely. Mike Neely,
0: Mike Keneally, yeah. He's he's very prolific as a um session guitarist. He got his start in Zappa's band. He's done some of his own solo work. Um He's been everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I think he's I think he did some work with Nine Inch Nails. He uh he was on at least one or two uh Ulver records. He's he's been all over the place.
1: <laughs> yeah. So like he you know, he was on he was an empath and he toured and then you had I don't know the bassist, he was the bassist from Empath, just some young guy who's good at the bass. And then <laughs> he also picked up Haken's keyboardist, which that guy must be fucking tired because he's a long ass night and he's doing a lot of shit because part of this thing was not having a full set list means that they don't have backing tracks. Oh, that's a good point. Because those are have to be queued up. I mean, he's got samples and stuff and clips of those things, right? But he has to manually trigger them. Right. Based on what's going on the song. And some songs they play, they'd start and they play half of it and they'd stop. And they'd play something else. And like or they'd break into a medley of whatever. Like they had to just go on the fly and it was really fun to see him running around all his different keyboards and little things and some analog synth stuff he was messing with and, and it was blast. Uh just everything about it was awesome. I mean, he played stuff from truly from across his catalog, he played fucking love Strapping and Lad song. And it was great because when he did it, he's like, we're going to play a strapping song. And but I need to bring someone out on stage. And it was Jed Simon, who was the other guitarist in Strapping mm-hmm. and Lad. He lives in Philadelphia. Oh, I so know that. he came out. He's originally from Canada, but he lives in Philadelphia. So he came out. Devin gave him his guitar or had him play guitar. Devin didn't have a guitar. And he's like, I don't this is awkward. Like, I don't know what to do because i haven't played this song without a guitar in front of me or performed without a guitar in front of me since like 1995 yeah
0: i was gonna say probably the when he was touring for, with steve Vai. yeah he's like i don't know what to do
1: and you can see him doing the like he was just standing awkwardly when he was singing and you can see him doing the fingerings on his left hand like to the song <laughs> it's just like so ingrained uh, that's my boy but so like that was cool i mean He's I guess they're doing like, you know, VIP meet and greets beforehand. And he's like, we we're talking to a guy and he's really excited that that Mike and um, Morgan were in Zappa. So, guys, do you guys mind just doing a quick black page, which I wasn't familiar with, but my friend filled me in is like this very famous Zappa song that's like very hard to play. And, yes. Uh, so they they did a quick black page rendition during the encore.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the black page is um, so that there was it's just a dumb like musician in joke really um and it it was this kind of uh joke among like session musicians and when you're a session musician you know what that means is you're not part of the band you just get hired to come in and play drums on somebody else's record and usually when you're a session musician you like you get the sheet music um you know like a day or two in advance, or sometimes not even that. You just mm-hmm. get it and you've got to learn it and play it then. And it was this joke of being afraid of, you know, one of these days I'm going to get to the session and I'm going to get the black page, meaning that the the um, the sheet music is just so covered with notes that it looks black. So uh, Frank Zappa, being just like a sarcastic musical jerk, um, decided that, He was going to write a song called The Black Page that was basically a joke to drummers about how hard it was to play. (laughs) Like (laughs) he intentionally was like, what's the, what's the dumbest, hardest like percussion chart I can write? and there it is so that's the the black page and of all the zappa songs that these motherfuckers are like yeah let's just do that
1: <laughs> yeah and mike canady played it he used one hand on the guitar and one hand on the keyboard oh come to on to do it and it was like what are we fucking doing um they played uh the tramp song disco inferno what is happening um, or oh, like half of it. Uh, there was this whole thing where I guess at some point Devin asked people to start bringing like stuffed animals to the tour to p- put on stage and he's going to like donate them. Yeah. I've read something um, about that. Yeah. And so like he had like a million stuffed animals. On stage, he seems like weirdly excited about. He just was, like really into stuffed animals for some reason in oh, kind of like yeah. a strange, but like endearing way. All right. Um, not in a weird way, but <laughs> to each to each their own. Yeah. Um, like. I don't know why, but it might be because yeah, he is using some sort of weird triggers. But so this drummer, Morgan, he's like a, a weird prog drummer. He's not like a metal drummer. Mm-hmm. So he had never used double kick bass drums before this tour. OK. So like and some of these songs are like, you know, he's playing love and stuff. And it's like, mm, yeah, interesting choice. I think my friend said he was using some sort of pads for some of the double bass parts, like electronic trigger pads, because his this drum set was huge. I've never like. Outside of like a dream theater show, I haven't seen a set this big, like, Hmm. and at a small club show like this, especially if you're Devin Townsend, it's not usually that big a deal. Three bass drums and a bunch of Toms. I was like, what is this for? Um, So that was, that was a noticeable thing that was like, yeah, he's not playing all the parts, but that's okay. Um, It's not his job. Uh, And it was, it was cool. But the coolest thing about it though, was just that he, like, I've seen Devin perform probably 10 times. Wow. Plus, probably. I mean, I think I've seen him every year for like, yeah, probably about 10 years. Maybe slightly less than eight years. I don't know. And he's a great performer. He always puts on a good show. He's always in it. But I've never seen him so fucking happy and just like so excited, like so, so, so excited and like just authentic in there. And his performance reflected that. I mean, he always performs really well. But like, man, Greg, he killed every single vocal section. He won't write like just like annihilated love, just like crush that song. And then went right into like a casualty of cool song where he just had like an acoustic guitar just like quietly singing. And it was just like, whoa. And uh some other weird stuff happened. Like for the encore, he just said, OK, like, what do you guys want to hear? I'm going to call on people. Like, what do you want to hear? And people shout out songs it's like, ah, we didn't prepare that one. But maybe next time. <laughs> OK, what about that one? OK, we can play that one. We'll, we'll do it right now. OK, let's we'll just play it. And then he ended with Kingdom. Someone requested it. Oh, boy. In the front row. And then they started playing it, and then he's like, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. I'm like, what's what going on? He's like, Did you just propose to her? What? Some the guy who requested it proposed to his girlfriend for at the beginning of Kingdom. And he wanted this like big monologue, but just like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Like, thank you so much. Like, you guys have a great life. Like, blah, blah, blah. Love. You know, the whole he's you know, just very big into like love. Sure. And then they like just like went back and started playing it again. I'm like, huh. This is such a fucking weird concert, man. It was wow. a great night. And if I infected everybody there, eh, sorry, it was worth it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, uh, cause you were telling me about it and, and like convinced me to like just go ahead and buy tickets, even though it's on March 16th, which is, you know, a week away from when we record this. And it's like, yeah, the coronavirus situation is not gonna be better. So I'm really hoping that it's not. Completely irresponsible for me to go to this thing. I have a feeling it's gonna be completely irresponsible for me to go, so I'm probably gonna end up missing it just because of you know um global pandemics. I guess that's a decent reason to miss a show, but it sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. And if if I end up missing it, I'm I'm gonna be sad.
1: Yeah, I'm actually. You know, we talked, and I'm I'm seriously. And the reason I want to talk about is because we have a lot of listeners in the greater like Maryland, Pennsylvania area and like playing in Baltimore on March 16th yeah. and I'm just like I think I'm going to just like you know see what the situation is but I'm seriously considering going down just to see it again because it's going to be a different show you know like it's going to be they'll play some of the same songs for sure like maybe even 80% but to see a couple different songs to see some more state I mean a ton of stage banners banners some improv some you know some uh, some jamming with those people like they're all just so talented and like the diversity of the group right like was just so cool because you've got like I mean, is like 60 something years old. Yeah. <laughs> like, it looked like my uncle up there. Like, he jams so differently than, like, he plays guitar so differently than, like, metal guitarists. Mm-hmm. And he's singing and Shay singing. And it's just like having, and i say like having her there providing, because Devin incorporates a lot of, like, female vocals into his music. Mm-hmm. Usually it's either Shay or Annika, but to actually have them be performed live and not in a backing track or have him do it is like, it just added so much to the experience. I loved it. It was great. Um, it was such a good time. So I'm hoping I can justify going and that. Maybe, maybe this whole thing will just blow over in a week. Right. It's not going to happen. It's going to be fine. (laughs) I hear once the temperature gets up, it it just, it's, it'll be fine. Oh yeah. Yeah. The summer kills it. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, if that's something of interest to people and you want to brave the coronavirus or whatever, like check it out. And if it's coming to your city, that's not here. Um, you know, check him out. I I actually feel like a little bummed out because I feel like I'm never going to see him do a tour like that again. Although Mm. I kind of just want him to like, just do that from here on out. Like he's at this point in his career where like people just like, I think probably in his mind or in, you know, tour promoters minds, like we have to stay in a certain lane, right? Like you're a metal tour, like play your metal stuff or do this acoustic tour or whatever. Like, I know it's like big and expensive, but like he's pretty much been selling out every show or near to it. So like, it's commercially viable. I mean, I don't know how much money he's paying to other people, but like, just, I just want to just do this. Just like every time, just like do a pull from your whole catalog and just play. Yeah. Go for it. Cause I listen, I listen like everything he does, you know, is it's perfect, not perfect, but great. So <laughs> yeah, that was my big highlight of the week. And then from there on out, it's been sitting at home doing a lot of work slash nothing.
0: What have you been up to Greg? Well, uh, I didn't have a transcendent live music experience <laughs> in the last week. Um, however, I, I did, and, um, I did catch up on a couple movies that I'd wanted to, that I've wanted to see. Um, I watched, uh, and I'll start with the one that's maybe a little less apropos to our our usual content. Um, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the latest Quentin Tarantino movie. Why'd you watch that? You hate Quentin Tarantino. I don't hate Quentin Tarantino. Mm. (laughs) I just think that he is overrated. Okay. Um, This movie is baffling because on paper... This movie's bad. This movie is it's not really about anything. <laughs> There's no real like thematic content, really. This movie's incredibly indulgent. Um just like all Quentin Tarantino work, it is very um obsessed with its own stylistic idiosync idiosyncrasies. Idiosyncrasies? idiosynchromeconicons Um it's there are just very long scenes that don't really go anywhere but you can tell that they're very actory or directory or film fan-y and all of that and it's also wildly inconsistent in tone i think you're just describing every quentin tarantino movie i am <laughs> but for some reason there's enough going on in this movie that i like i'm just watching it the whole time i'm like i'm loving this this is great Like, I don't know what it is that somehow he has managed to make a movie that is entirely devoid of any real content, but still have it be great. Um, That's kind of his talent, I'd say. Well, I feel like this might be the first time where he's really, and I say that having not seen um, Hateful Eight, but I feel like this is the first time where he's like made it all work Mm. uh you know in in his recent run of films where um you know kind of post pulp fiction um where he really really dove headfirst into his own kind of style um and indulgences um but i just feel like this is the first time where it all kind of clicked and i was like oh okay and i felt the same way with wes anderson when i saw uh grand budapest hotel and i was like okay this is what you've been trying to do. <laughs> Everything leading up to this was an imperfect version of this. Um So, yeah, I don't and I don't know how much of it is just that this movie was saved, that the kind of emptiness of the writing was saved by just, I mean you put Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio on screen, that takes you a long way towards a good movie because those guys are just fantastic. They are charismatic. They are really, really talented actors. And they're both really, really good at bringing a lot to a scene that is otherwise hollow. So I don't know how much of this is... Quentin Tarantino, and how much of this is just two incredibly talented and charismatic actors. Um, but yeah, it all worked for me. Cool. I'll check
1: it out then. I also didn't see Hateful Eight. Uh, I don't think there was another one after Django before
0: that, right? No, I I, I it was. I think it was Bastards, Django, Hateful Eight, blah, and then this one.
1: Yeah. I've only actually ever seen
0: Pulp Fiction, Django, and Bastards. What's between Pulp Fiction and Django? Kill Bill? Kill Bill. The Kill Bill movies are good. I've never seen them. You should watch the Kill Bill yeah. movies. I think they're better if you've watched a lot of um, you know, 70s martial arts movies, sure. but they're still pretty good. Gotcha. Yeah, well that's cool. I mean, glad you liked it. Yeah, it was good. I, I, I did enjoy it. Um, I watched another movie that I liked a lot more. Um, although now that I kind of put them side by side, I realize there's some similarities. This is another movie that is highly, highly stylized, um, aping a bygone era of Hollywood. Um, And also, it is a movie that is carried entirely by the performance of two very talented actors. Um, And that movie is The Lighthouse.
1: Oh, yes. I have heard about this.
0: Um, So this is by – this is is a film by Robert Eggers, who – Previously did the film The Witch, which I also very much enjoyed. Um, this is starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. End of list. It's all black and white and shot in very much like, you know, first wave of cinema technology and techniques. So it's, it's actually presented in like a square aspect ratio. Weird. Because apparently it was shot on like period equipment. Um, but that square aspect ratio um, adds a lot to the sense of claustrophobia because it's about two men in you know like uh, you know like whaling times <laughs> like Moby Dick times <laughs> um, 19th century probably. Yeah in a lighthouse, there's the old lighthouse keeper, Willem Defoe and there's Robert Pattinson who's the you know younger guy who has come to like be his assistant for some stretch of time and they both, uh go insane and that's the movie uh uh it's um i thought i was gonna like this movie because i like robert eggers um there was there have been a lot of hints in the promotion that there were going to be some lovecraftian elements which yep dig it um and it's one of these almost like stunt productions of like, it's two guys. We shot it over the course of a week in a real ass lighthouse. And, you know, and Willem Dafoe is using a dead dialect that apparently, you know, Nantucket sailors used to speak in and, you know, all <laughs> of this stuff. And, um, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that is a movie for me. And it very much is a movie for me. It is just, um, you know, 90 minutes of two men going insane and um it it does such a good job of you know being a psychological horror film that doesn't really rely on any kind of special effects um or a lot of weird like tricks to make you doubt because as it goes and as the as as these two guys start to unravel um You're never quite sure um, who's crazy. You know, is it that one is crazy and is convincing the other one that that one's crazy? Like, is someone like is Willem Dafoe manipulating Robert Pattinson or vice versa? Um, Are they intentionally making each other doubt each other's sanity? Are they both crazy? What is and um, so you're kind of off balance the whole time and the movie keeps subtly pulling the rug out from under you but it does it in so much of this is just the actor's performances, you know, it relies so little on special effects, um, or, you know, wacky camera tricks or anything like that. But just these two guys, their performance and the way it's shot and the way it's directed and the way it's written, the way that you see their sanity unravel and, um, the way you, the viewer are never quite sure what's real. Um, it's really fantastic the way it's all done. Um, I I highly recommend The Lighthouse. You think you would recommend it to anybody? Yes. Cool. Um, I will say, um, I mean, once you know that, okay, this is a movie in black and white that is basically two guys in a lighthouse. Like, once you're kind of on board for that conceptually and knowing that, like, you might have to turn on the subtitles to understand Willem Dafoe. um, Like, if you're in for that you're going to like this. I mean, if if for you, a black and white movie with minimal special effects and it is really a character study, if you're kind of checked out of that kind of film, you're not going to like this. But um, if if you're on board for those kind of initial cautions, this is a fantastic film.
1: I'm in. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like the sort of like like they said, trick gimmick, sort of like not gimmick, but it's a negative connotation. But, you know, like the we're going to do this in a very certain way and be a little bit idiosyncratic.
0: And there's a little, there are some special effects and there are some things that they, they put in there, but it, it is, um, it has a very real and tactile feeling to it. Um, and again, just the way that, you know, most movies, when they want you to like start questioning the sanity of the characters or, you know, the, the reliability of the narrator, you know, they have to start doing some tricks where faces change in the mirror or, um, you know, the, the they start hallucinating um and there's a little bit of that, but um man, it's really good and I will say I have been until this point a Robert Pattinson doubter um and that's 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 on me That's a bias. He was in a lot of dumb teen movies about dumb vampires and as a result, I was like, he can't possibly be talented. That's me. That's my bias. I'm working on it. But at this point, I would say he is overqualified to be Batman. Oh, wow. There you go. Uh,
1: Cool. I'm definitely going to check that out then because I definitely wanted to see. I haven't seen him in anything, I don't think, besides Twilight as well. So uh, I'm excited to see what, how this sets me up for Batman. It's a, it's a prequel to Batman, right? Sure. Everything's sure. a prequel to Batman. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Uh, I haven't watched any movies. Shay and I did watch the first two episodes of, are you familiar with the rapper Little Dicky? I've heard of such a person. Yeah. So, you know, for those unfamiliar, he got internet famous and now is actually successful and famous by making, you know, he's a, you know, satirical You know, rapper, but actually has chops, I guess. I don't know. I don't think about raps. I'm not going to embarrass myself, but he seems to be respected for his rapping skills. But he's very funny, very self-deprecating.
0: And and part of his shtick was you were never quite sure if he was a good rapper or not. Yeah. Is that kind of the vibe? Yeah. He sort of, he
1: walks that line that I actually think is one thing I wanted to say about Devin Townsend. I forgot was that one thing I love about him is his ability to simultaneously be totally in love with metal, but also constantly take the piss out of it. You know what I mean? Like it's really easy for people to cross a line of like, though they don't actually like the thing they make fun of or they're in there. They like, find it, whatever. Like he really likes it, but also knows it's a lot of it's ridiculous. Yes. And can walk that line without going too far in either direction. And I think Lil Dicky is similar because part of his, he's, he's satirizing rap in the rap world because he's just like this kind of like affluent Jewish kid from Cheltenham, which is a neighborhood north of Philadelphia, you know, large Jewish neighborhood. And, you know, he, he jokes that he uses bar mitzvah money to like get started, which is true. And, you know, he, got started making like YouTube video raps with stolen beats, which is not uncommon in the rap scene from my understanding and making things about like how small his dick is, which is supposed to be like, you know, the opposite of what you're supposed to rap about. You're supposed to rap about like how wealthy you are, how good you are in bed or whatever. Right. And so he's, but his, his stuff is really well written, right? Like it's like the jokes he makes, the, the humor of it is very funny. Uh, Shay is a was a big, we listened to it a lot for a while. We kind of fell off of it, but Anyway, he always said that he loves to rap and always wanted to rap, but he wanted he also wanted to use it as a gateway to get into television. So he got a show on FXX, and it's premiered this past this week, actually, a couple days ago. So now it's being it's showing on Hulu the day after. So I watched the first two episodes, and I'm pretty into it so far. I mean, it's it's kind of got an absurdist tone to it, which some people don't like, some people do. I for me, it really depends on the kind of absurdism, but. Uh, It's almost telling like a fictionalized... It's called Dave, which is his name, Dave Bird. And it's kind of telling like a fictionalized version of his story. Hmm. So it's like, you know, the show opens and he's got this like YouTube video with like 25 million views called My Dick Sucks. It's not a real song, not what he had, but it's similar to kind of what he had initially. And him trying to navigate living in L.A. and trying to like break into the rap scene being this like really dorky looking white Jewish guy who you know doesn't fit along with everybody else in that in that Mm -hmm. scene for the most part so um it's pretty funny um i'm gonna gonna give it a go for me if a comedy can like you know most comedies have trouble finding their feet in the first take a little bit to find their feet right A couple episodes maybe half a season so the fact that i was laughing in the first two episodes is a good sign i don't know how the legs it has long term uh although i do like seeing more of his like because he makes you know he does like rap in the in the show And he hasn't put out An album in a while So you get to get A little more like Music if you like That side of it But uh, eh, Kind of interesting hmm. Also Shay and I Just before Before I started recording this, We watched the first episode Of Barry Oh yeah Which I have been Recommended a hundred times And haven't watched yet And I realized that I still was running My HBO subscription From when we did Watchmen Which is way too long And me not using it <laughs>
0: uh, So I was
1: like oh, I should probably Just watch this And then turn that off For a little while
0: uh, Have you watched that? Um, so we watched the first couple, maybe the first half of the first season, uh, and then we, we kind of bounced off of it, but that wasn't really the show's fault. That was more, um, uh, we just, it's tough to stick with a show when you have a two-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, so it's one of those shows that, like, we just keep meaning, like, oh, we should get back into Barry, and then we never get back into Barry.
1: Yeah, I mean... I don't know much about it. I tried going a little blind because it seemed like a weird premise. I'm just I'm just gonna go in and see if it hooks me. So first episode seemed good. Bill Hader is a lot of fun. I know it's mm-hmm. his performance in the show itself has been has received a lot of positive critical reactions. So I'm uh, gonna give that a go. Uh, what I have been doing with my time this week I've been home with not much to do is. Besides work, of course. Uh, in our my friend group's eternal struggle to find a new video game, we've stumbled onto a game called Deep Rock Galactic. It's an indie game about uh, space dwarves mining. Sure. sure. Um, so it, it kind of picture like, I'm trying to think of a, a comparative game, but kind of like Minecraft plus like Left for Dead? Not Left for Dead, but like a cooperative like get in and get out kind of thing. All right. Um, basically, you're, you're, it's got a very funny, like, style, like, very over the top, like, just like super dwarf, like, you know, you get recipes for beer and you get those, gives you buffs, and then you know, everyone's really ridiculous, and, uh, they just always are talking about rock and stone and dwarf things. Mm-hmm. So you basically get sent into these asteroids to mine materials, but, you know, it's all dark and you have to put lights, throw lights everywhere, and there's, all these kind of aliens trying to come kill you while you're trying to mine this stuff. Uh and I always like cooperative games and um, it's a lot of fun. They creators said they were trying to go for like a Starship Trooper vibe of like the aliens and the creatures and the feeling of them swarming you and that kind of feels like that. So, uh we're finally starting to the point where the game's starting to get like a little more difficult, which is good cuz I was just like, "Oh, this is just fun, but it's kind of easy."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um it was um I'm not sure if we're doing it again this weekend, but it like it's been in pre-release for like two or three years and Mm -hmm. I guess now it's finally releasing on I forget the 12th or the 15th sometime in mid-March and it's on sale on Steam for half off up until that point so it's $15 instead of $30 which is considerable difference because we were looking at it for a while we're like mm, $30 is a lot to drop on like untested indie game you know yeah but uh it's really well polished like I've not experienced like any real bugs it feels good to play uh yeah, it's a first person style and there's like four different classes and each one has a little something different it brings to the team and those kind of things uh so if you are a computer gamer and that kind of thing I would recommend it I don't know how long it you know what the legs are like I know there's like They've added a bunch of endgame stuff and things. I don't know what that looks like. It could be a, you know, 30 or 40 hour game and you're, you've kind of done it, been there, done that, or it could be longer. I'm not sure. It seems like they're kind of continually adding new stuff, which is good. But uh, usually once a game is released, it gets at least solid support for at least a year or so. What hopefully. would hope? Uh, that's been like my kind of addiction this week. The only thing I want to talk about was when I was in Italy, I had a lot of downtime and I read a lot. Um, you know, watching the plane and this kind of things. But I decided to just, I was going to take a break and do something else. But I said, you know what? I've only got three books left. I, I'm feeling it. So I'm going to finish the Robin Hobb series.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: I'm about halfway through the second to last book. And this last trilogy is sort of like the sum up trilogy. It's the conclusion to the original character Fitz Chivalry. His uh, his story It's called the Fitz and the Fool trilogy. It's a pretty damn brutal so far actually yeah. uh the first book basically in kind of typical of style like doesn't really take place outside of a single home which is kind of i mean like a manor more mm-hmm. or less um uh, which is not uncommon for her style but uh it was definitely even more like kind of like confined and specific um there was a scene in the second book where uh maybe it's the end of the first book i got you know got on the plane and you're just hitting that button over and over again i forget if it was the first or second book but there was a scene that I, I get very invested in books, mm-hmm. but I can't say that I get like emotional reading books the most part, just because there's a little bit of a distance when you're reading text, right? Sure. It doesn't have when you're watching movies, you listen to music because audio cues are very important for emotional resonance for me. But I'll tell you what, Greg, there was a scene in that book that like you kind of have been waiting to have happen for like, you know, like nine books and it happens. And I was just like crying tears Aww. on the plane. I was just like, not like bawling, but just like, I can't stop this from happening on the plane right now. This is happening. And it wasn't even as was so sad. It was like this, like very like bittersweet, you know, oh my gosh, this is finally happening. And, and to me, that's, that's a sign of a, something was done, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, the that's
0: what you're, that's what you're going for.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't, I have no idea where it's going right now. I feel like, you know, like I should have a little more of an idea, like halfway through the second the last book, but uh I'm not gonna say no. Like it she seems to be doing something interesting. Um she decided to in this series add a second point of view character who is very different than uh Fitz, the main point of view character. Mm-hmm. And um I think that it's interesting the two those two characters' relationships and how they're interacting and uh for I'm not gonna give them spoilers, but like two family members to how they kind of communicate and it's very like feels very personal because it, you very quickly see how people ha- can misunderstand each other so easily. Mm-hmm. Black lack of a term, you're like, because your scenes go back and forth between these people who interact a lot and you're like, oh, she thinks that he thinks that, oh, and he thinks that she, ah, uh, okay. Like, and that's real life, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it just happens to be set in a weirdo fantasy world. Um Although still like, generally very late on the fantasy. I don't even know what these books are about to be on this. Just been <laughs> reading them for like years now and uh yeah, so but I should be wrapping those up in the next few months here. Next month or
0: two I'd say. That's gonna be a big moment for you. I yeah. feel like you I feel like you've always been on the cusp of finishing them for a very long time.
1: Yeah, it's been about a year and a half 'cause I remember I was on the second series when I went about honeymoon, which was a little over a year ago. I think I started around like November, mm-hmm. October, like 2018, I guess. So, I mean, 16 books, some of them being Oof. very long, like, that's a lot. That is a lot. And I did read some other books in there, too, so, uh, yeah. But, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to say if I recommend the series to people or not. I think you have to be a certain kind of person looking for a certain kind of series. Hmm. Like a very patient, sort of methodical <laughs> person.
0: <laughs>
1: and I, I, when I say that, it sounds, like, bad, but I'm not saying it that way. It's just, it has a lot of room to breathe. I'll put it that way. Yeah. and I think that's like purposeful. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's just like slow for the sake of being slow. But I can see certain styles of you know people who read like that one might not be for them, which is which is fair. So,
0: you've been reading anything, have you? Oof, um, not really. I have. I've been looking for something to read, and I just I haven't really landed on anything. Um, uh, I did just start today. I, I went back to. Um, I started rereading Iron Council by uh, China Miaville because um, of the Baslag books, I think that's the only one I haven't reread. So I'm kind of going back to that because I want something weird. Um, it was funny because I was like, I was just today, I was looking for, um, I was like, I know what I'm in the mood for. But I don't know where to go next, right? I don't know what, you know, what's the author to look for here? or What's the series? So I just went to Goodreads and I was like, weird fantasy. <laughs> um, and of course, like the top 10 entries are all China Meaville. I'm like, well, I guess that's the right genre. <laughs> like, I know what to search for. <laughs> but there's like one other guy. And I'm like, all right, uh, I think I'm just going to stick with China for now. <laughs> so I'm I'm, I'm, I'm reading uh, Iron Council again. That's I
1: feel like it's timely given like, you know, it's, it's so, such a, of the three books, probably the one most focused on like labor and politics,
0: his his socialism. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, and it's, it's, (laughs) and this is what I do to myself because I was like, all right, I'm getting to that point where I'm a little exhausted by the political stuff. And, um, not to say that I'm checking out of the process, but you know, it's like, I need you know, I need I need something in my day that is not that. I, I, I need some time to take my mind off of it and recharge my batteries. So I'm like, get into some fiction and somehow work my way back towards socialist literature. I'm like, what am I doing, man? <laughs> like, I just can't. I can't help myself. Um, so, yeah. So I'm going back to that. Um, uh, and um, although I do have something else that I've been... Um, I just started just today. That is probably an actual escape. Um, the new season of Castlevania just dropped on Netflix.
1: Oh, I've heard good things.
0: And I liked the first two because they were just like, um, a good, like adaptation of some very silly video games. Um, and the first two seasons were, you know, basically just a, um, or maybe it's first season. Ah, who? Do- it doesn't matter. Um, it's the first two seasons are, are basically like, what if we just retold uh, Castlevania 2? Or maybe it's Castlevania 3. I don't give a shit. Um, in like a little bit of a with a little bit of a modern tone. Obviously, it's still set in a fictional, vaguely medieval Central Europe. But, you know, what if we just did that? And it's like, yeah, it's good. And Warren Ellis wrote it. Warren Ellis is, is very good um, at comic books and, and regular books. And they got to the end of season two and they basically had exhausted like the video game plot. And it's kind of like, eh, where do you go from here? And season three, it it's kind of going to an interesting place so far. I'm, I'm like maybe two and a half episodes in, so I could be wrong. But like. It seems like they've gone from like we're just retelling a very silly video game story um, to now it seems like it's becoming more of like a like more like a political thriller in the okay. way like in the way that Game of Thrones was a political thriller. Right. It's more about different factions and nobody's really the good guy or the bad guy, but you've got armies and loyalties and except some of them are vampires and so far i'm like this is a bold move but i like it you know do you think the show is good for people who know nothing about castlevania yeah outside of the names of the three characters yeah i mean knowing that especially the first two seasons are gonna feel very much like a video game and there's gonna be some stuff thrown in that seems a little weird because they're literally adapting a video game from the 80s that you know never made a lot of sense anyway um no it's it's a genuinely good watch like it's it's you know fun like kind of pulpy action stuff um that never goes too self serious with the goth vampire stuff but also knows that the goth vampire stuff is part of the fun and um it does a good job of You know, making you feel some sympathy for Dracula, but also making him like just a villain ass villain. Um, It's good. The first two seasons are good. The third season's good. You know, the animation is a little uh, cheap, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but the voice acting is generally good. Um, uh, You know, a lot of recognizable voices. um, uh, But general, but also generally like voiceover people not hey we got some actors you kind of know to pretend to do a voiceover like it's actually generally good voiceover artists and um yeah i'm enjoying it it's 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 a lot of fun it's just you know good like dumb vampire shit um which i can say uh they do a a much better job at dumb vampire shit than the other dracula series on netflix (laughs) the bbc one yes yes
1: Cool. Um, I've been wanting to check that out for a while, and I always forget. Um, I actually have three shows that I have on my docket to solo watch. I'm trying to prioritize which one. Also, solo time is not a thing right now because, well, I'm secluded. I'm quarantined with my wife, but um, I'm trying to decide between three shows to watch right now. Greg, let me get your opinion. Okay. Uh, one is Castlevania. Okay. I haven't watched it all yet. One is My Hero Academia. Ooh. Um, I was hearing there was another new arc or something and it reminded me that show existed and that you recommended it and that my friend recommended it and maybe it's been enough time since Evangelion that I could watch an anime show and not want to jump out the window.
0: Yeah. Uh, my hero is the opposite of Evangelion. Right.
1: Which I think is kind of why you know, I need like an anime palate cleanser still. Um And the third option is... And I plan to watch all these shows at some point. It's just the order. Um, I, the second season of Alter Carbon just dropped. Uh, last week I think two weeks ago. Um, this time starring Anthony Mackey as the main guy. Well, I found some disturbing, some sad news that uh the creator of that. I heard the books aren't particularly great to begin with, but um, that the show does a lot more to you know, you know, just make it better in different ways. But then I guess the the creator is backing up um J.K. Rowling and her. Um the not like anti trans. Some, yeah. Great. Yeah. What's they call it? You know, trans exclusionary feminism or whatever. Uh, um yeah, so which is weird because and like the context is like kind of important for this because this is literally a series, the premises where you can take your mind and put it in a different body. And there's some, you know, from what I've read and seen, there's not any like it's not like he kind of just doesn't address it, but it kind of should be addressed. Right. Yeah. Like, because there are women and men and, you know, vice versa's bodies because of the way like the discs work and stuff. You could just load up to any anybody's body that you want. So I don't know. It's interesting. But I've heard good reviews about the season and um, going to probably check that out.
0: So which do you think I should watch first? Well, um I mean, my hero is going to be much more of a commitment cuz you're looking at like I think right now on Hulu, I think you've there's probably like 70 episodes you could watch, and knowing you, you're going to watch them all. Um <laughs> so that is more of a commitment, um whereas you could power through Castlevania in like a weekend. Um I will say that my hero is a much purer experience like that show has its vibe and it just goes all in on that vibe and it's a very good vibe um and like if you just want a show that's gonna like make you feel good and like um you know it's very like triumphalist and like you just like it just makes you feel good about feeling good um then you should watch that um but it also it's very shallow in its content because it is, again, it's so like unabashedly good guys are good, bad guys are bad. You can do anything if you put your mind to it, you know, um, nobody ever really gets hurt, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Gotcha. It's very, very good at that, but it is also that. It is also very much a show that has the depth you would expect of something that's targeted at 13-year-old boys. You know? Okay. Um, whereas, and that's not to say that Castlevania has a lot more going for it, but it is a little bit more mature. Um, but in more like a targeted at 18 year olds kind of way. Okay. <laughs> Cause it's still, it's still got a little bit of edgelord to it, uh-huh. um, to be fair. Okay. Um, but not, but not in it, but in a, in a self-aware way, it knows what it is. Um, um, I would say if you need, if you need just like an emotional boost, you should watch My Hero. Like if you just want some fucking sunshine dumped right into your veins, you should watch My Hero. (laughs) Okay. If If you don't need that much, give Castlevania a try. Gotcha. I will let you know what I decide. Okay.
1: I'm excited to hear either way.
0: Yeah. It should be interesting.
1: Maybe what I'll do is maybe I'll binge Castlevania and then maybe just alternate between my hero for some happiness and Alter Carbon, which is decidedly generally not happy. Yes. Very grim. (laughs) Yeah. I think a good plan. I have, oh, I have a question, Greg. Uh-huh. And I don't want to bring up a sore topic, but Uh Picard chicken?
0: Um, I, I stopped watching it. Oh, no. Yeah. I got about halfway through episode three and I turned it off. And canceled my ABC Go, or whatever it is. CBS. ABC just put random things together. Whatever it is. No. Who is it? CBS. CBS CBS All Access. Access. I don't give a shit. Um, I canceled that membership. Oh, no, Um, Greg. I'm so sorry. I was profoundly disappointed by this. Um, I'm so sorry. I think there were... So let me tell you some of the things that um, made me walk away Um, so, so here's, so, so this, this, here's some stuff that happened in, um, episode three that, that made me say, fuck it. Um, so there's a rock formation in California called Vasquez Rocks. Um, it's very famous. You see it in all sorts of stuff where, um, the main element of the rock formation is this kind of like very, almost perfectly triangular, jagged thing that comes up out of the ground at an angle, um... They went there in the 3rd season of Glow, if you, you know, if you google it, you'll know this image. And this was the setting of a very famous episode of Star Trek the original series where Captain uh Kirk fights the Gorn, who's a guy in a like a crocodile mask, mm-hmm. and they fight in front of these rocks. And um but it's also a very famous filming location in real life Earth, you know. Um and in Picard, he goes to round up an old friend and she's ex-Starfleet. We haven't met her yet on the show. She's ex-Starfleet, We, you know, and he's going to go find his old friend because she's going to help him get a ship or something like that because he needs to get a ship to go rescue the girl. But Starfleet won't give him a ship because he's too old and he's got a brain disease. Um... So he goes to find his friend, and she's living in the 24th century century equivalent of an Airstream trailer, which cool. I don't understand. First of all, I don't understand how in the S- Star Trek The Next Generation world, which is a post-scarcity economy, right, um, someone's living in a trailer out in the desert, but also... Her trailer out in the desert is parked right in front of the fucking Vasquez rocks. And I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to be like, huh, hey, remember from from like when Kirk did this? And that's so fucking dumb, for one, because it's so obvious. But also now I have to ask the question within the canon of like, wait, so the real world location of the Vasquez rocks exists in the Earth Earth of Picard. Okay, but if that's true, this place is like a like a famous landmark and this character just like parked her trailer in front of it to live? Which is which is it? You know, like like it's not if this place exists in the real world or in the world of Picard, then you can't have a character just living there, right? It would be kind of like if in the show we go to visit someone who lives, who just like built a home for themselves on top of George Washington's head on Mount Rushmore. It's like, wait, what? They can just do that? What? Are, what's happening here? It, it just doesn't. So that bummed me right the fuck out. But also this character um, who we meet keeps calling Picard J.L., short for Jean-Luc. And we're meant to believe they had some history, which is fine because Picard clearly had a Starfleet career for some period between uh, the end of Star Trek Nemesis and the beginning of Picard. So fine, he's, he's had other people in his life, but there's no fucking way that the Jean-Luc Picard that we left off with in Star Trek Nemesis is going to let somebody have give him the nickname J.L. It's just so weird and lame. Um, And then... There's a flashback scene where he's talking to this character, and it's basically going back to uh, – we're doing the thing where we we reveal to the audience how he ended up parting ways with Starfleet. Even though it's been pretty clear from the previous couple episodes, like, what went down, you know, I don't know the exact moment of when he left, but clearly – it's set up, oh, this was the breaking point. But anyway, so, okay, so we're going to have a flashback scene where we actually do it. But instead of actually showing us the dramatic scene where Admiral Picard quits Starfleet, right? He's having some, you know, big discussion with the higher-ups at Starfleet, you know, um, and they get into an argument and he basically says, well, then, you know, if that's the way it's going to be, then, yeah." fuck all y'all, I'm out of here. Um, instead of actually seeing that scene, we see him walk out of the building and sit down with this new character we've never met and basically uh narrate it to her. And so instead of showing us a dramatic confrontation and showing us Jean-Luc Picard making his case for why he did what he did and standing up to questioning about it, right? And seeing him do some Picard shit, which is, you know, to actually like, you know fiercely defend a moral position in the face of authority instead of actually getting to watch that we just get to hear him explain it to somebody um and that was when I I basically just said I can't I can't do this anymore this is this is such a disappointment um it, this was clearly made by people who have no idea what made Star Trek the Next Generation great and what made made John Luke Picard a great character um it, 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 it and All through this, none of this feels like a Last Jedi style, you know, um, switcheroo. Mm -hmm. None of this feels like, oh, we're going somewhere with this. We're doing this because this is, this is, um, a commentary on, on the character and, walk with us and you'll see how he, the, this character got to this point. This is not that. This is clearly just written by by people who don't get it. Um. So I, I, I walked away and I'm very, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very disappointed. That's
1: really a shame. I have not heard really any positive things around the internet about it at all. So that sucks because just like all our discussion of, you know, Rise of Skywalker, it's like, you do this thing and it's there now. You know what I mean? It's right. not...
0: You don't get another shot at this. Right. Um, because there is no Jean-Luc Picard without Patrick Stewart. And there are no, you know, there isn't a situation where 10 years from now we go and we call up, you know, Sir Patrick and say, hey, we want to take another whack at that. We're going to do some time travel hijinks. And, uh, you know, we we brought back Rick Berman, who, you know, wrote The Next Generation and then Battlestar. So it's going to be good this time. And don't worry, because it's Star Trek. We can, whatever we can just block all that out and do it again. We, that's just not going to happen. It can't you know, we're, we're out of time. Um, so, um, I mean, we'll always have we'll always have the finale. I'm sorry, Greg. That's OK. I'm
1: curious because I know they've already like green it for a second season and all that kind of stuff. So I wonder if there's any segment that people that like it or if it's just like CBS really trying to force it.
0: I don't know. I honestly don't. Um, but yeah, I, I, I it is not a good show. It is not a good show. And it is a uh, it is um, it, it's It's a real loss, honestly. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get I mean, look, it's it's a it's a show about spaceships. So I don't want to get too into this. But this is one of those things where like we could have had something nice. We had an opportunity and it was squandered. Um it's the same kind of feeling with uh with the with um with Rise of Skywalker, honestly. Of like, wow, you really could've you really could have done something with this, um, but you didn't, and you're not gonna get another chance, you know?
1: Yeah, wasted opportunity.
0: It's that's it. That you know, there they you you can um you do not get another chance at, you know, making episodes seven through nine. Uh, They're not, you don't get another chance because, um, you like, you know, you can't, can't get Carrie Fisher back. You know, you're not going to get Mark Hamill back. Uh, Harrison Ford, you barely got the first time. It's, it just can't be done. And, uh, it's, it sucks. I'm
1: very sad for you.
0: That's okay. I, I, I'll muddle through somehow. (laughs) At least there's other good things out there for us to like. Yeah, there's a couple things, I
1: guess. (laughs) That is really a shame, because like you said, it is this one opportunity to try and continue Star Trek in a real way. I mean, that discovery is not real, but you know what I mean? Just like we're going to advance the story past the point that we had sort of left off at for a very long time. And to do it in this very meaningful way with a character that's so beloved and then botch it is just like a really big disappointment.
0: Yeah. And like I'm comfortable with the idea that there can be multiple Star Treks all at once. Right. You've got the more action oriented um, Kirk Spock adventures that may or may not be continuing in movies. Fine. Uh, you've got the little bit more, you know, darker, morally gray uh, stuff on Discovery. Fine. And then you could have something that is more in the vein of next generation that's a little bit more high-minded and you know more about you know morality and doing the right thing and working together and all those kind of next generation um ideals um and themes and i really want some element of that in modern star trek and to see them botch it like this you know because to me it's not so much like oh we're gonna you know finally we're getting back to this like you know where the timeline left off like that's interesting but honestly like the overall timeline of the star trek universe isn't terribly interesting to me like i'm not super wondering what the romulans are up to now you know uh-huh. yeah it's more about like i really liked the the themes and ideas of the next generation i really liked its vision of the future um and it's really sad that um that's not being represented anywhere do you think there's a way to do it well in the modern age? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you can, i maybe, maybe the, 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 maybe discovery is the star Trek is the zeitgeist that star Trek needs to embody right now. And maybe I'm just being nostalgic and maybe the world doesn't need or can't make a next generation star Trek right now with that same kind of optimistic um, outlook with that same kind of moral clarity maybe you just can't make that show in 2020 uh you know yeah. maybe but um i'm sad that they didn't really try <laughs> yeah yeah um and even and 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 not even that but also just how um embarrassingly bad Picard is not just that it went in a thematic direction that no I didn't I wish they'd done it differently but just the fact that again like the basic writing mistake of rather than showing me the dramatic scene you're just having characters explain to me what happened off screen and it's not even like it's a battle like oh we didn't have the money for the battle like you know like the way Game of Thrones used to be where the battles would happen off screen um it it's it's like this was a boardroom scene you know or a courtroom scene like this was cheap to make. You could have just showed it to me, but you didn't. Um, it's just absurd. And, um, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to bring it up. Oh, and another thing, this is just really annoying. Um, there's a scene where, um, so Picard has some, you know, some Romulan, uh, I'm not going to call them servants, but they work for him, like in, you know, like, you know, like managing his, his vineyard in his home. And they're kind of his like employees Stewards. slash friends. Um, and it's clear that both of them have like Romulan special forces history, right? Um, so they're investigating this mystery. And the first thing they do is they use a transporter to just, uh, transport into an apartment that was a murder scene which opens up all sorts of questions because at this stage he's just a private citizen right he doesn't have access to any like special federation tech which might let him like get into somebody's house but apparently in the world of picard you can just teleport into any random residence even if it is a crime scene like that has profound implications. Like I never thought about how transporter technology would work in ways of like, well, man, if you've got transporters, like just back on earth, couldn't you just like transport into somebody's house and you never really thought about it, but then this show just does it and then never addresses how, which now makes you think like, is this also a post post privacy world? Like, are we not even going to address that, that, that this just happened? Yeah. Um, and then they go through this kind of stupid, like, Star Trek CSI scene in this apartment, which is dumb and raises a lot of questions about the technology, but also is needless. But as then this this Romulan character is explaining to Picard, you know, what went down, um, we're hearing about all of these various, like, Romulan, like, special forces cabals, With all these Romulan names like, oh, they're the Kartesh, but this wasn't the Kartesh, this was the Tosh. and they're the secret version of the, and I'm like, this is incredibly needlessly complicated because none of these concepts existed before this episode, you know, so like, you're just like building twists upon twists within this dialogue of shit that you're just making up, like, why do you have to have eight levels? You just be like, oh, yeah, that's the the Romulan secret police. Not they're the secret faction within the secret police. That's actually a splinter group from the other. I'm like, none of this shit matters. None <laughs> of this shit. You're making all of this up and you're just like building twist on twist on twist within a paragraph. What the fuck is happening here? Um, and, uh, that, that these are just the examples of like the shoddiness of the way this is all put together. Like it seems to be put together with very little thought, you know, needlessly complex, uh, building lore on top of lore just to fill out Wikipedia pages. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, uh, so it does not seem like it was put together with care. No, no. Um, and again, like, you know, I can forgive that it, that it was like, oh, you know, look, they made a Star Trek, but it's not for me. You know, they mm-hmm. made, you know, I, I, I can forgive that, but to make a Star Trek, but, but bad, just bad, like at, at the basics of storytelling. That's unforgivable. I'm full of sorrow for you. That's okay. I, as I say, I will get by. But I got to, the, you
1: know, it just, it just sucks when you don't like something and it's going to continue to happen. Like, you know, the show's still coming out. You're making a second season. Who knows how long it'll go, but it's always going to be on that peripheral and you're always going to be like, ah, that show still exists and I know it's bad and it sucks.
0: You know, I've, I, over the years I have developed, uh, I have calloused myself to no longer care about, you know, what, uh, to, to basically turn off, turn off my ability to care about, um, a franchise or a band or a series or whatever. Like, I just say like, Nope, not for me anymore. Go with God and just not be pissed off every time I see something about it. Or, you know, um, I, but that, it took me a long time, a long while to get there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it took me a long time to get to that point where I can just be like, yep, you know, they're a different band now, and I still like the old stuff, but, uh, you know, the band they are today is not a band for me, and I, I wish them well, um, but that piece was hard won.
1: Yeah, perhaps you're a bigger man than I. I don't always feel that way.
0: Well, but. you'll get there. You'll find, as you get older, and I hate to say this, as you'll, as you get older, the more and more things will, you know, no longer be for you. Disappoint me. (laughs) You're going to have to make peace with that. Like I'm making peace with the idea and I'm extra frustrated now because they pushed the release of the new James Bond back to November. It was going to be in April. They pushed it to November because they're worried that coronavirus is going to keep people from going to the movies in April and they're probably right and they don't want it to hurt their their box office numbers. But, um, this is going to be Daniel Craig's last James Bond. I know they say that every time, but this seems pretty serious. Um, so much so that they are actively looking for, you know, like they're, I think they're actually like casting for who the next James Bond will be. Um, and that signals that the next, when they find the next actor, they're also going to be basically setting the tone and the feel for that actor's period of James Bond movies. Um, and they're smart. They know that to keep this franchise alive, they need to, you know, every time they recast Bond, now they know that also we're retooling the series to bring in new fans. And, you know, the Daniel Craig movies were really like the first time I was like, wow, they're actually like, like, like these are James Bond movies I can really get into. And that's because. They were making them for me. They had figured out what an audience of, you know, um, because Casino Royale was uh, 2006, so I was 23. So they knew right there I'm right in the target demo of 18 to 34, uh, almost dead smack in the middle of it um, for them to say, like, what do guys in that range our target audience what do they want in their movies and they made movies with that in mind um and so the next batch will be targeted at guys who are in their 20s now and me and guys who are in their 20s now have different tastes so the next batch of James Bond movies will be made for guys who are not me which means I'm probably not gonna like James Bond movies as much as I do the new ones I'm probably just not gonna like them as much and that sucks (laughs) Like, and I know rationally that, you know, most media is, I am aging out of the target, right? Mm -hmm. They're not making Star Wars movies for me anymore. They're not making um, James Bond movies for me anymore. Um, And I'm realizing that all of this, they're not making movies for me anymore, period. Uh, Which sucks. Except for the lighthouse sure yeah no like (laughs) they're gonna be weirdos like you know ari aster is gonna keep making movies for me until someone tells him to stop um robert eggers it appears is gonna keep making movies for me until someone tells him to stop or marvel hires him and he you know (laughs) and sands off all of his stylistic uh edges but yeah it's just one of those it's like we talk about like the marvel movies like whenever they get started on phase nine or whatever it is It's going to be weird. It's going to be different and weird. It's not going to be the movies we remember. Um, And uh, I got to come to terms with that. But the list of things that are being made for me is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And uh, I'm becoming aware of that. Mm. Well,
1: I feel like there's so much stuff. the, The positive thing, the silver lining is that in this, if this was 30 years ago, you'd be fucked. Yeah. But in the modern age of there's so much content of, you know, whether it's film or books or games like you'll still be able to find stuff you like oh yeah
0: it's i'm not you know um it's just going to be fewer and further between but also you know this this stuff all kind of works out because theoretically as you as you age out of the time when they're when everybody's making everything for you theoretically you're entering a phase of your life where the fact that um all of the media corporations are banging down your doors to sell you stuff is okay. You know, you reach a point where you're like, I don't need that many movies a year. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, I don't need that many video games every year that a- appeal to me. Um, So theoretically, it should be fine. Um, And I do think that I'm a little bit better prepared than like, you know, guys from like the boomer generation who kind of thought that things were always going to be for them. <laughs> and then they got like mad when things weren't for them and um, elected a racist game show host to be president. Um So like, I'm at least like, I feel like being conscious of the fact that like, yeah, this is the way the system works at some point, you know, the little Logan's run gem in my hand starts to glow. And that means you are no longer the target audience. So, uh you know, we're not making everything for you anymore um and again i realize i'm speaking as a from a position of privilege being a straight white dude um in that demo yeah literally everything was for me and if i didn't check all those boxes the number of things that were for me would be much smaller i get it um but uh yeah i just feel like being conscious of it and being like no it's not that like everything's bad now it's just that, you know, they're making things for a group of people who have a much different taste than I do. And I benefited from the way that that system worked because that meant when I was in the demo, I had a bunch of people making things just for me. And I got to benefit from that for a good 10 or 15 years. And now uh, I, 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 I step out of the way and let other people enjoy the deluge of content custom tailored to them.
1: Yes, it's a pretty healthy way to look at it. Uh, I, on the other hand, am doing everything I can to make sure that stuff is still custom tailored made to me. You've got five years left. Uh, True. But I'm also participating in uh, Nielsen Scarborough survey. Uh, They picked me up, so I'm going to make sure that my voice is heard.
0: Yeah, because you are still in the demo. Yeah, uh, you're right. The demo is 25 to 34. 18 to 34.
1: 18 to 34. I think this one was a little bit tighter, actually, but um, something in the 20s. But yeah, so you're right.
0: Although that 34 is not that far away. No, it's 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 not. Uh, yeah. Although I'm still closer to it than you are. So That's true. Uh,
1: but yeah, yeah, just to follow up through it, and I told you, but to, to follow up on the cliffhanger of if I screwed myself the Nielsen survey or not, I did not. They called me back. Well, first they sent me $5, which was cool. For returning my survey. (laughs) Nice, crisp $5 bill. Oh, lucky you. And then they called me while I was in Italy. And, you know, I didn't call them back at first, but then they called me again. I picked up uh, and I did a a very long phone survey where I said no, like 150 times as they went through and said, okay, I'm going to ask you, you know, just yes or no to all these questions. Uh, What radio stations do you listen to? (laughs) I was just like... Uh, okay, can I just say no? Does Spotify count? he's like, like no, you know, only radio. I was like, uh, okay. And he just went off and listed like all the local radios. You know, it was this very, it's very targeted. He's like, you live in this county, right? And this zip code. I'm like, yeah, okay, good. We mm-hmm. need people from there. Okay. All right. So I just said no a thousand times. And then I kind of was like, can I just like say no to all these things? I see He's like, no, I, I have to <laughs> yep. go through each one. And I was just like, okay. He's like, we'll do it together. And I'm like, all right, he's a pretty nice guy. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go through all the... F- physical newspapers you read i'm like oh, oh, okay <laughs> no 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 all right what about all like the online version of those physical newspapers I'm like all right no no <laughs> eventually it's like what other like things i'm like does this count he's like i don't know maybe we can write it down <laughs> okay <laughs> it's a very bizarre bizarre uh sur- b- survey it's just like it just feels like and I, I'm just judging based on the, the the phone, you know, just the phone, the voice, and the guy on I mean, the other hand makes me like a little older, and it's just like, this guy, was must think I'm just such a millennial asshole, you know what I
0: mean? It's like going through and being like, you don't do any of this
1: shit? It's like, no, I don't do any
0: of this stuff. I look, that guy probably does 30 of those calls a day, and he is very used to that. Yeah. Um, Towards the end, I started getting a little better, though. It was like, oh, do you
1: have, what do you have hooked up to your TV? A Fire Stick, a Chromecast. I was like, wait,
0: yes. I can say yes now. <laughs> hey, those are things that exist in the, you know, in the, uh, you know, in a, in a post 1988 world. Wow. The, the one We're question the guy
1: on. couldn't even get out. He said something like, uh, okay, um, do you use, what was the question? Uh, do you use the internet for anything else besides email? Like he like couldn't even finish it without like laughing. He was like, uh, okay. Uh, I'm like, yes. He's like, yeah. Okay. Everybody says yes. <laughs> Why is that question in there? <laughs> I mean, I guess there's like a small subset of people who are like 95 who maybe use the internet that way, but.
0: Well, so, uh, as somebody who works with surveys for a living, um, the problem is, is that for a lot of, so, so what the, the, this is probably what you, what you took is a tracking survey, which means it's, um. You know, it's one survey that gets fielded basically all the time. And the data is just collected all the time. And, and you look at it over time, right? It's not a, it's not a like nobody in Nielsen said, like, you know what? I want to know what blood, you know, what, what guys like Andrew do for newspapers, you know? Um, and then they designed that survey custom, right? This is, this is a tracking study that is always going. And those things have a lot of institutional inertia. Whereas, um, so in order for your next batch of data to be comparable to your old data, you have to hold a lot of things constant in the survey. Mm-hmm. If you change too much, then you're going to have a break in your trend lines or even worse, certain things just aren't going to be comparable. You're not going to be able to look at your 2020 data and compare it to anything in the past if you break too much. So there's kind of survey design and like scientific reasons why um, you have to, you know, make very small changes um, and why certain things, um, you know, you end up with these vestigial questions that are like, why are we still asking this? And it's like, well, because if you take it out, that's going to change the order of the questions, which means every question that comes after it has to get recalibrated versus the old data. And we can't, so some of it is that, and some of it is also uh bullshit. Like that question was added to the survey 20 years ago by this guy who's a VP now, and he won't let us take it out. <laughs> um, he still loves the, you know, he he still thinks that he's running his business based on the do you use the Internet for other than email question. <laughs> um, there's a lot of that, too. But also, you know, that question might be a screener question that leads into another batch of questions. And it's structurally important to the survey. Um, these things are a nightmare. And um, and uh, yeah. So Yeah, I get it. I mean, I've I've done some work with surveys and stuff yeah. like this too. Even just general
1: data collection. Like I remember we, we have this thing at work, and I'm going into details, but it's like uh, you know, a year over your tracking report. And when I started in the job, I was like, these things we're tracking like aren't useful metrics. Like we should adjust it. And then they're like, Yeah, but then we won't be able to compare it because we don't have access to the raw data to manipulate it differently from years past a certain point. And I'm like, Right, okay, but now we've been doing like <laughs> at some point you gotta you're using a bad methodology just for that inertia, right? And it's a tough thing to navigate. So it's, I get it.
0: It absolutely is. Um I I I find it frustrating that um Nielsen, of all people, is still running that shitty outdated of a survey because you know as someone who uh who pays for various elements of Nielsen data it's kind of frustrating to see like cuz Nielsen that's like the you know that's like the gold standard for a lot of syndicated research and um to know that they're still running things like that is scary yeah i mean one thing i think about a
1: lot and part of its ignorance because i'm not Super well versed. I mean, I've like taken some classes. I've done some things. So I'm like, I get the basics, but I'm not like super good at with statistics. And I mean, I understand social science research and different aspects to it, but you start to wonder. It's like. And just to your point, like okay, these are the gold standard, and they're doing these things, and then your your company's paying them to get their information, and then at some point you're gonna lose context, and people are gonna draw conclusions that are based off weird. It's like how much is this stuff like? Obviously, it's worthwhile because people would do it if it wasn't, but like, is it getting the results, and then people are drawing the correct conclusions that is actually accurate, or how much is being skewed by like weird? antiquated methodologies or
0: inertia or these sort of things. Right. So this is something that I think about a lot and I'm, I'm coming around to an idea. Um, so have you, you you've, have you seen an Aaron Sorkin TV show or an Aaron Sorkin movie? Aaron Sorkin. So the West wing, for example,
1: mm, I never watched West wing,
0: but uh, social network.
1: Nope.
0: Okay. Well, um, anyway, Aaron Sorkin is known for, you know, writing all of his care almost all the characters in aaron sorkin stuff are like super intelligent super competent they speak in full paragraphs you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and have you seen a coen brothers movie mm, and not probably. when they're being serious like no country for old men but like burn after reading or fargo no okay well
1: Did they make big, big no that's not
0: coen Brothers. yes okay yes so, and then you see the characters in Cohen Brothers movies and everybody's an idiot. Nobody has any idea what's going on and everybody's just fucking everything up. Um, but, and I think the Cohen Brothers understand the world much better than Aaron Sorkin does. I think everybody <laughs> at every level of organization is dumb. We are all dumb and we are all just trying to get through the day. Nobody is that sophisticated. Nobody is that much of an expert. And yeah, Nielsen is the best, but also their stuff is dumb. (laughs) And yeah, those of us who are making decisions based on Nielsen data, we're dumb. (laughs) Everybody's dumb. And I think the sooner we all like wrap our heads around that idea... And we think about things like, how could Disney fuck up Star Wars this bad? You're like, but they're Disney, they're geniuses. Here's the thing, nobody's a fucking genius. Everybody who's making those big decisions at Disney, the Bob Igers, and whoever the new Bob Iger is, those are guys who are not that much smarter than you or I. They make the same mistakes we do. They're just as distracted as we are. This idea that somewhere out there, there is some really smart person with their hand on the wheel. Nope. Nope. That's an interesting worldview. Uh, I... We're all working with pretty much the same brain physiology, man. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not like, you know, it's, it's not like there's anybody out there who's got two brains in their head. Yeah, I'm I'm so curious
1: because I feel like my lived experience is very narrow in that I, I basically like got into higher ed and never left. And it, that's a very weird context because I like from what I've seen, I agree with you a great deal. And it's terrifying.
0: So, so maybe actually let me, let me, let me clarify that a little bit. It's not that we're all dumb. It's just that nobody is, is really a better decision maker than anybody else Mm. in the long, you know, in the broad strokes that we're all equally bad at making decisions in a professional setting Mm, all over the place. Okay. (laughs) We generally speaking, most people are all equally bad at decision making.
1: One thing I've I've become keenly aware to that's it's getting a little bit hard to uh, kind of rectify is this realization that you start seeing people who are, you know, you consider pretty smart, logical, rational, whatever. And you you, you see them, you start to see how people justify decisions, right? The mental math, they go up, they lead into something, the, the process Mm -hmm. And you see the logic, but then you see through the logic. And then when you start to be self-conscious and you say, oh, well, if they're doing that, I am probably doing that. And then you start self-analyzing all your own decision making. And now you're in a situation where you're seeing through your own bullshit and your own justification for things that you want or don't want or something along those lines. And then you're in a weird place. And that's a place that I am approaching. I'm just like almost like it's almost like a, a lack of confidence Right. Like because you see all the bullshit, then you're like, well, I'm full of shit, too. So now what? (laughs) How do you move forward? Right. Just like we're all just like doing the best we can. But uh, it makes you feel a lot less confident about those decision making skills. Or does it make you
0: feel super confident? Because look, man, chances are the you know, we're all working with the same really bad hardware. Right. Monkey brains. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so why not be confident, you know, like you're, you're, we're all equally, equally bad at this. So don't let anybody make you feel like you're especially bad at it or that they're especially good at it. Because I mean, I think that there's, there's all these studies that say even the best, like, um, uh, even, even the best, you know, wall street, um, uh, vampires like even the best ones only slightly outperform essentially random chance right um and that you know like again you look at like the decisions that um you know disney made with star wars they paid billions and billions of dollars for this thing and just failed and failed and failed and failed and failed and you were like if anybody could make it work why couldn't these guys? These guys are geniuses. They're Disney. And as it turns out, maybe they're not geniuses, yeah. Maybe they, you know, maybe they've they they they've got these theme parks that print money, which they use to prop up a movie business that, you know um actually maybe doesn't do that well. And maybe they don't make very good movies. whoa, think about it. Think about it.
1: Yeah, uh, weird. Yeah, I mean, I I try and, like you said, be confident and just move forward and act like you know what's going on. Because that's nine-tenths of the battle half the time. Uh, Definitely seems to work in higher ed. So. (laughs) Well. um, um... I guess that's my point is that since my context is so narrow, I always feel like, well, I bet if I worked in like a, you know, like a bigger, more intense corporation or something, I I wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't be as much bullshit. But I know that's false, right? Yeah, well. Maybe probably a different kind of bullshit, but.
0: I mean, I think there's something liberating when you realize most people are dealing with the, um, uh, the same, uh, feeling of imposter syndrome that you are and that we're all, everybody's muddling through and trying to, trying to figure it out and, and, and trying, uh, trying to like, we're all putting on a show. And, um, if, if you, if you look at, if you look at things in that, Through that lens, then I think that makes you more confident because you realize like, look, there's a human level here in any interaction of, you know, we're all afraid that we're out of our depth. Mm -hmm. And some people, some people compensate for that with meekness and some people compensate for that with overconfidence. And if you, if you can crack that code, then you've got people figured out. Um I I mean I think there's a um, a quote that I can't remember. Um, uh, I I heard this in the Radio Lab did a series called More Perfect about the Supreme Court, and each episode was a different kind of case. And um, they did an episode about I think Justice Hugo Black, um, who basically went had a series of nervous breakdowns um, on a particular case, which was kind of the first time the court had to deal with a real political issue. And I don't remember all the details, but, um, uh, or no, it was one of his fellow, um, um, justices who had this, this mental breakdown. But anyway, one justice has a mental breakdown because he just doesn't know what to do with the case. And, you know, he, he, he's really struggling with it. And then another justice pulls him aside at some point during this process and says, you know, just remember we are all just boys grown tall. And that sticks with me because I think about like, if, Supreme Court justices are dealing with this issue of like, look, we're all just kids pretending to be grownups. Nobody really knows what's going on here. We're all just doing our best. Don't put so much pressure on yourself. Like even if Supreme Court justices who are of all the people who would be like, you know, that level of like professional sophistication and confidence and, you know, the Aaron Sorkin ideal, right? Like – if even they are are kind of going through that idea, like, then the rest of us are fine. Like, yeah, we're all, in our heart, we're all just 10-year-olds pretending to be grown-ups. And we're all Vincent Adultman from BoJack Horseman. So just understand everyone you deal with is also in that zone. And it, I just feel like that liberates you.
1: Yeah. I need to watch that show, by the way. You've never watched BoJack Horseman? I never have. What are you doing with your life? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, no, that makes sense. I think I struggle sometimes because so many of my friends are in very like, for lack of a better term, like narrow, professionalized fields. So like, they're like experts, you know, in those things. They're engineers. They're software developers. They're they just seem they seem so like focused, and like my job is not like that. I'm just like "Eh, I'm just kind of figuring shit out, and like I get by, and that I think that feeds into that imposter syndrome.
0: Yeah, but they feel the same way. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're probably right they they we're, we're, all of us feel inadequate all the time <laughs> um and and there's also a really big difference between being an expert in a in a in a particular subject and actually being a good decision maker or you know being a thoughtful person you know there's a there's a huge difference there and this is one of the problems in America that we also have is that we assume that like surgeons are geniuses it's like not – Necessarily, man. Surgeons are just really good mechanics, but instead of cars, it's bodies. Right. And yeah, like they have a high pressure job and they have a very complicated job, but at the end of the day it's a technical skill set it is yeah. it is it is a knowledge of the anatomy a knowledge of the tools and the physical expertise to get the job done that doesn't necessarily make you a smart person so when we're like oh but ben carson's a neurosurgeon of course he should be secretary of housing it's like <laughs> no that just means he's a very good mechanic that doesn't that doesn't mean he's not intelligent doesn't mean he's not a good decision maker but Being a great surgeon doesn't necessarily make you a super smart dude.
1: No, that makes sense. We really went down a rabbit hole here. That's what we do. We do. We talk talk coronavirus. We're on, like, you know, imposter syndrome, professional aspirations. A little bit of stuff in there about media, but, you know. We avoided politics, though, so that's pretty good for the most part. A little. (laughs) I had a second thought, though, about coronavirus, though. What if coronavirus Hmm. makes all the old people stay home at the polls? And they don't know how to vote from a distance. That shit's complicated. What effect does that have on the race?
0: Oh, oh, this this whole thing is going to be very interesting because um, because it's not just the it's not just the polls. Because also you gotta feel like like this exposes something, right? Like this is a big argument for why we need national vote by mail. But because you can't just shut down the polling places because these places will be you know huge vectors for infection spread right during what will probably be the peak of all of this. Right. See also the convention itself. Right. Or rallies or whatever else. Right. But then also exactly all the campaign events that, um, that these candidates would be doing again, the like you say, like the rallies or even just canvassing. Right. Mm -hmm. So what the effect that's going to have on the, on the primary and theoretically the general, depending on how this all shakes out, like that is it's all completely unprecedented. Like we have no idea how that shakes out. Like you say like yeah, it might keep older people away from the polls, which suppresses turnout, but suppresses turnout in a way that favors younger voters. Cool. But and you could also say that well, if you have situations where like offices and businesses are essentially shut down, then that frees up people to, you know, I would imagine if you are working from home, on a on a particular Tuesday, it's probably a lot easier to pop out and go down to your polling place than if you're at the office. So maybe you get a boost in turnout from that. Um, and then there's also, uh you know, I think that there's a lot uh, there's a lot that can happen depending on how they get this all worked out. But, you know, if people start getting bills for their coronavirus tests, uh, that Medicare for all is going to look a lot better. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think that that's, that's one of the things that, you know, is, you know, all of this happening is going to give people a lot of firsthand experience with, you know, maybe our healthcare systems fucked eh, that they might not have. Um, so who knows how all this shakes out? Plus all of the candidates are in the danger zone for, yeah, really. for this. Um, and they're shaking a lot of hands. Yeah. That was so, the, uh,
1: the SNL joke, right? Yeah mayor pete yeah
0: yeah Um,
1: yeah they're shaking a lot of hands i imagine that they're gonna stop doing that soon probably
0: yeah it's it it, this is that that's going to be that, that introduces a whole new wrinkle into this primary process that um uh makes all of it very very unpredictable wild card but i will say this um i will remind people uh well whatever no look i i I think everyone should vote for Bernie Sanders in the primary. And, um, and, but even if, uh, even if you don't think Bernie Sanders should be the nominee, um, if you're voting in the primaries, um, and no matter what the polls say on any particular day and who's got the most delegates on any particular day, it's important to remember that, uh, from here on out, well, you know, well, and, and is that delegates are awarded proportionally. So there is no, There is no argument that my state is going to go for candidate X, so I'm just going to stay home. Like, it does matter because if, you know, if your guy wins 46% of the state, he wins 46% of the delegates and every delegate counts. So no matter what the state of the race is, your vote really does matter in the primaries. It's not like the general where it's like, well... You know, I I live in in Idaho, so what's the point in voting for a Democrat? What's the point even turning out? Because the state's going red, which means that's where it goes. It doesn't matter what I do. That's not the way it works in the primary. Delegates are proportional. So, um, fucking vote. I, for the thirty <laughs> people that listen to this, go fucking vote and vote for Bernie Sanders. But if you're not gonna vote for Bernie Sanders, uh anyway, I don't know.
1: Don't vote. I'm yeah, uh, if you're not
0: gonna vote for Bernie Sanders, just like stay home. I don't you know. Yeah, your it, vote doesn't fine. matter. It's fine. Your, your boy had a chance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh no, well said, I think that um there's a lot of I think people over over strategize their vote and I think for especially for primaries and it's like just vote for the person you think would be the would be, would be a good the, president. The one. There's don't. different things for other votes right but in this context you can that's that's the point of a primary you
0: can do it don't don't vote for the person that you think your dad might vote for vote <laughs> for the person that you want to be president yeah yeah well all right
1: we talked a lot about a lot of things shall we call shall we pack it in
0: i think we should we all should. right
1: well uh we've got some good things cooking and uh Hopefully it's not coronavirus
0: in my house. I hope you do not have coronavirus. I hope no one who listens to this has coronavirus. And I also hope that uh, everyone who listens to this is careful because it's not just about you and your own risk level, but also, um, you know, who you might spread it to. Um, And and the more we can all do our part to, you know, slow the spread, you know, that's that's going to save lives. So fucking turn on your headlights in the rain, even if you can see the other cars.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Be overly cautious. Yes. But
1: don't panic. Don't live in fear.
0: Don't hoard masks. Don't hoard gloves. Yeah. Don't hoard Purell. No, hoard Purell. We all need Purell. But yeah. Go ahead and eat Chinese food.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever used hand sanitizer in my life. Maybe like twice. This is not the, this is not the form to, to, to <laughs> reveal that. I wash my hands,
0: but I don't, I don't know. I was always like, ah, oh, it makes super bugs. I'm not going to use it. It well that you know that, that is a theoretical concern. Um, but I have I got one of the little Purell bottles that's on a little dangly mm-hmm. dealy and I hung it from the rear view in my car, and I'm making the habit of every time I get in the car to just give myself a little scrub. Yeah. Uh, well you've a
1: little one to be extra careful around too.
0: Well, and you know, it's 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 well, yeah, I well and just I mean, look, if I come out of this and all I did was develop some better hygiene habits, that's fine. <laughs> that's true that's true alright guy I'll see you later see ya good luck with the quarantine I'll be here